Thank you for joining us on the Just For Show Show, a podcast where we share our common love of theater and performance with fellow artists. I'm Heidi Swarthout. Justin Schaller here. And I'm Galen Malik. On this episode, we chew the fat about food, and later we sit down to talk with cultivated and captivating Scott Purdy. And now, on with the show. Hey, Heidi, thanks for coming over so quickly. Sure thing. You sounded pretty freaked out on the phone. What's up? I got an audition for my dream role. Justin, congrats! Well, but why the saddy sad face? Well, I've got the application filled out, headshot attached, everything ready to go. The problem is my acting resume. It's kind of lean. I mean, I've been in a couple of plays, but... Oh, hey, here. Hand me your laptop. I'm sure it's not that bad. <clears throat> Oof. Ooh. Ooh, you might as well give him an empty sheet of paper. This won't do at all. Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. Oh, man, maybe I should cancel my audition. What? No. God, when you talk like that, it makes me want to cancel your face. My face? No fear, my friend. All we really need to do is expand a teeny bit. You're golden. Expand? Yeah, simple. Trust me, you called the right person. It's all about marketing, baby. Just taking the experience that you have and putting a little sparkle on it. Uh, Okay, for example, you've been doing a lot of Zoom readings lately. Just for fun, not exactly resume material. Oh, see, that's where you're wrong. Uh, Recently adapted the works of Shakespeare, um, Ibsen, and Chekhov from stage to screen. You're typing that? (laughs) Seems like a bit of a stretch. Just filling in the lines, my dude. It's up to them to read between them. Okay, next. Um, Well, I know you can sing. You do it all the time in the car, in the shower. Not professional. Wait, have you been letting yourself in while I'm showering? I asked you to stop doing it. The spare key was just for watering my plants when I'm out of town. Can I help it if I love your voice? Okay, so, um, baritenor with soprano falsetto, five octave vocal range, A1, 2, C, 7. Okay, that sounds like gibberish. What does that even mean? Oh, it's Prince's vocal range. Impressive, right? I figure yours is similar because you totally rocked a little red Corvette at karaoke last week. Okay, what else? I don't know about this. It seems a little deceptive. It's fine. Everybody fibs a little on their resume. Okay, let's see. Wasn't there a picture I saw of you on Facebook? You were somewhere exotic. Um, You were standing there with your mom and dad, and there's like a a big castle and a bunch of flags from different countries. (laughs) That's a family vacation photo to Epcot. Why do you assume... Oh, a dialect expert. French, British... German, uh, Japanese. Heidi, please stop typing, please. Heidi, <laughs> Heidi, just stop. Whoa, oh, what, what's the problem? I'm just trying to help you stand out from the competition. Do you want this role or not? Yeah, of course, but not like this. I want to earn my dream role. I, I want to be honest. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. I. I hear you, and I see you. Honesty. That's beautiful. Thank you. So you understand? Yeah, I understand. 
that they are honestly going to love you when they read this resume. Save, attach, send. What? No need to thank me. Though I will want a comp when you're cast. Or you can just serenade me with a little bit of whatever you were singing in the shower this morning. What was that, Adele? So good. <laughs> So, Heidi and Justin, I want to talk about food. Because food sort of winds its way into theater, either on stage, backstage. I, there, everybody's got some sort of food story. So, uh, Justin. Yes, Galen. You and I were both in uh, Making God Laugh, which featured <laughs> the enemy of the show, <laughs> The Fantasia dip. Yes. Yeah. I need I need some background. So this was, I, I missed this show. This was Making God Laugh at Gallery Theater in West Chicago. What is Fantasia dip? It sounds like a dance. So the show <laughs> covers a family's holiday get-togethers over the course of four decades. And one of their holiday traditions is this Fantasia dip that the mom makes every year. And from what I hear from other folks who have done the show, it's sort of just whatever they want it to be. Our concoction was comprised of spaghetti, queso dip, and I can't remember what else. Do you remember anything else that was in? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. The whole, I don't know if we mentioned, but the whole gag throughout the show is that this Fantasia dip is awful and no one will tell her that it's awful. Everyone pretends that it's lovely. Uh, okay, got um, it. And so, yeah, we make this awful concoction. You could see like spaghetti noodles in it when we like try to dish some out. Um, yeah, I, I think we had some sort of, objects mixed in with it that were unidentifiable but yeah it was pretty you didn't even really want to get near it and and that just made it all the better for the actors because we all had to like pretend that oh yeah we're eating it yeah oh yeah i just finished a big bunch of it yeah did you actually have to consume it did people eat it we got we got away without actually eating it (sighs) during the show right yeah we would just sort of show it off and then like Wasn't there one person who had to eat it? Like, didn't Catherine have to actually eat it? I think there was some sort of exchange between she and the mom, and she did have to actually take a little bit in because she, like, dipped her finger in it, remember? Uh, Okay, yeah. Yeah, so. (laughs) Oh, poor girl. At that point, you've got a choice to make. If you've dipped your finger in it, you're either licking that finger or you're wiping it on the tablecloth or flinging it across the room. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was pretty gross. Um, and right. She, you know, was our Indiana girl. She drove in from Indiana to Illinois to be in this show because wow. she loved the show so much and, and get abused in this show, right? And being forced yeah. to taste Fantasia dip. But I think later in the show, she gets like water thrown in her face and stuff. Yeah. That's <laughs> oh, right. Man. Great. Yeah. Oh, she, once again, playwrights, you know, they, they write these things in. That just they are evil. They really are. They've really got something against actors. That's pretty funny. Yeah, even the scent of it was like, ugh. (laughs) I don't think queso is meant to be in like a bowl, like in a bowl. Period. It should be, or it should be in a bowl, but it should be like in a dipping bowl, not like in a (laughs) salad bowl. Oh, so this was was a big quantity too. Like Fantasia dip was in a big old salad bowl. Oh yeah, we dished it out to everybody on the stage. Oh, nice. It was good. Oh yeah. Wow, it's funny because I mean that's I don't know. I think every family does have 
something like that, a dish that it has to be there. Whether or not anybody touches it is another story, but it's like there, you can't have that holiday yeah. without, you know, aunt so-and-so's something or other. Yeah. yeah. Now, that playwright is great at touching the all those things. and They're very relatable. Yeah. That, that's Sean Grennan, right? Yeah. What about you, Heidi? Do you have food stories from shows, whether it be gross food stories or trying to negotiate how much food you're going to eat so you could still talk? Yeah, I was thinking about this. There are quite a few where um, food was involved. The one that comes to mind right away was the female version of The Odd Couple at Steel Beam that we did a couple years ago. Again, thanks, Neil Simon, for writing in a bunch of complicated food stuff that you know, that is referenced and that you have to, you, you can't just be like, oh yeah, they're, they're mentioning uh, that they're eating food. It's, it's no, it's got to be there. And, oh man, we went through so many bags of potato chips because the girls are like sitting around playing Trivial Pursuit, eating potato chips. And it was, a, I just remember throughout the rehearsal process and the run of the show that it was like a red letter day when we got to open a new bag and then we weren't eating the stale chips out of the old bag that had, you know, been open because it was like these giant family sized bags. So we, they were, they were gross, but we ate them anyway. A stale potato chip is still a potato chip, I guess. Um, <laughs> but there was also reference to a, a crab salad on crispy toast and the first weekend of the show Doreen Dawson actually had to eat this and the first weekend the um the woman who picked up the food bought this beautiful crab salad from like Whole Foods or something it was fancy it was really tasty Doreen was actually pretty excited to to eat it um but, you know, then the first week comes and goes and you come back and it's the second week and you look in the fridge and you're setting your props and it's like, oh, is that is that the same crab salad from last week? I wonder I wonder how that's Ooh. doing. So then it was like she ate some kind of little bit older crab salad. She she was fine. Then like the next oh. weekend, some kind of not so good, not uh, not a fancy Whole Foods version showed up. <laughs> and it was pretty bad, I guess. And so, we, you know, that was another thing. She, Doreen was always like, what kind of crab salad hell am I going to face today? And how many breath mints am I going to need to counteract it? So that's, that one comes to mind. And then I think every person who's been a part of a production of The Odd Couple has a spaghetti story because there's the famous scene of, you know, uh, sitting down to eat the spaghetti and then it gets hurled uh, against the wall. And so I've, I've heard a lot of funny stories from various people over the years about spaghetti incidents um, where the, you know, the plate stuck to the wall or the spaghetti had, you know, they had put some kind of, uh, I don't know, motor oil on it, basically some kind of weird lubricant so that it would slide down the wall um (laughs) luckily no one actually eats that but um yeah yeah that one that one definitely came to mind yikes i was in a show called how the other half loves and it follows three couples one of the couples is an employee the man of the couple is an employee of the, the man from another couple and then the third couple, 
Oh man, how does that? I can't remember how they're intertwined, but at one point in the show, the employer or employee is having dinner at the same table, but with the two different couples in the show, he and his wife. And so the convention is that you're switching as the the couple that's between the two dinners, between like facing upstage and then facing downstage. And there was this dinty more that was used as our meat for the, the dinner. Luckily for my stage wife and I, we didn't really eat it because we were constantly switching between the two scenes. But I know that <laughs> The other two couples were not happy about having to have Dinty Moore. Dinty Moore. I'm just, it's conjuring images of dog food to me. It looks like dog food. Cracking open (laughs) the can and the gravy. Yep. Yep. That's exactly. And it's like these little cubes of, you think it's like, you know, play meat, basically. It's not actual. No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I was not in that position. Yeah. Yeah. So luckily I got out of that, but. The other two couples did not. <laughs> oh, no. What yeah. about you, Galen? Besides Fantasia Dip, do you have any good experiences, bad experiences with food on stage? I haven't had to, like, really battle with real food on stage very often. Um, I, I have actually created fake food to use on stage. Um, well, of course you have. That's so in your <laughs> wheelhouse. <laughs> well, I mean, one show that you and I were in, Heidi, we had it. We were at a restaurant and we were supposed to have a comically large turkey leg that yes. we didn't we didn't have one around we didn't have to actually eat it so I made one out of like paper mache or something um and then another show that that you and I were in we we played like the uh the mom and dad in some little sketch um and uh in yes. order to cheer up our son you you brought him a whole chicken a whole roasted chicken that's right yeah. i remember that which i think was also paper mache yeah Oh man, this I think Galen's try, trying to promote a business here. Like everybody, call Galen for your paper mache food needs. Yeah, exactly. you covered. <laughs> it's just odd that it comes up more than once. Like, oh, I got to make some more fake bird meat. That's so true. That's so funny. We need to do um, something Thanksgiving themed and see if we can get you to make like a whole turkey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I was also thinking about a more pleasant memory involving food was when I was in the diary of Anne Frank at the Albright theater several years ago, but I played meep geese and in uh, one scene each, you know, the play of course is very sad, but has these also beautiful moving, you know, hopeful moments of humanity and, um, and family. And at one kind of a celebration day she sneaks the family her homemade spice cake and they you know of course are in this attic and starving and eating very unpleasant things just to stay alive and she brings this spice cake and I used a recipe from my mother-in-law who was my home ec teacher for for anyone who doesn't know (laughs) I know I know it's kind of like but um and she would, she taught us to make this uh, cake. She called it cowboy coffee cake, but it has cinnamon and nutmeg. And it's a great recipe for people who are learning how to cook because you learn about measurements and you learn about liquid versus, you know, uh, dry ingredients and greasing a pan and all these techniques. 
And so um, whenever it was cowboy coffee cake day at our high school, you could smell it in the hallways because it was mm. like class after class was making this stuff and people would meet each other in the hallway like, oh man, do, you know, were you in that class? Do you have any? Can I have some? And people were like sharing their cake in the hallway. <laughs> and so it was, the, you know, for me playing that role, I, I asked the director, I said, would it be okay if instead of buying food, could I could I make a cake? Like I wanted to do that as part of the experience. And um, so I made cowboy coffee cake, which just, you know, is a spice cake with a little crumb topping really. And it was really special. I mean, the, the cast loved it and I loved doing it. And it, I don't know, there was something like a little bit of magic in it of, of actually preparing it for them as the character prepared it for the family. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was much more welcome than an old package of crab dip. <laughs> right. Or an old can of Dinty more beef stew. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a much happier story. Who, was it you, Heidi, or was it maybe Julie that had the apple in uh, Strazi? Oh, it was me. Show. It, oh, it was yeah. me. all right, that's it. Heidi, you have to tell we the apple the story. Apple story. Oh, man, it's so embarrassing. Well, um, Troop Strazi, the uh, Commedia troupe that Galen and I were in together for a time. At one point, we broke away from doing our own original sketches, and we did a script, Company of Wayward Saints. And <laughs> there... <laughs> um, a little bit like Strazi, you've got, you know, sort of these stock characters, the lovers, the, you know... The, the joker the the hero the all the stock characters the, yeah the captain the yes. the doctor right on and on and on. right the the harlot etc and one little scenelet took place in the garden of eden and my character you know kind of an eve like character encounters the snake and there's there's an apple and <laughs> she takes a takes a bite of the apple and we had been um, rehearsing I believe with real fruit our director had been bringing these apples and I would bite into an apple and then we'd you know move on and and one day for whatever reason she did not bring in a real apple it was a plastic wax <laughs> apple and she just not for any cruel reasons just because there was a lot going on and she had forgotten to tell me that that that's not an apple don't don't eat that so i i took a big old chomp out of it and my teeth went uh 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 and i you know had to sort of detach my teeth from the apple (laughs) hilarity ensued (laughs) these things they have (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're lucky you didn't break a tooth uh, yeah. <laughs> no no yeah nobody got harmed in the uh, apple incident no just the apple i don't think that apple <laughs> was ever the same <laughs> justin you could talk a little bit about what it's like being a part of a show that has a lot of food involved at, because you directed skylight and you you did so much for that show you you were your own one-man crew really you you helped build the set and you would fetch all of the groceries and supplies um could you tell us a little bit about that experience 
well, just like theater is, it's a collaboration, right? So it was really a, it was really a dialogue with you about how much of this food do you want to actually chop throughout the show and how much would you like to just be able to open a can? <laughs> <laughs> and then also deciding timing too. Um, so we had decided, right, that you, instead of chopping a tomato, you would just open a can of tomatoes and put it in the spaghetti sauce. Um, you did choose to chop the onion. Um, and it was funny how we didn't really time everything out. It was just something that we started rehearsing. And as the rehearsal process went on, you determined when you were going to mix the, you know, put the ingredients together and when you were going to do certain things um, to either highlight the emotion of the scene or just so that you completed the recipe at a certain time. So yeah, that, that was really complicated. I'd love to hear your perspective too, as an actor, how you decided <laughs> when, what was going to go where and how you were going to get there. And That seems like such a risky concept as a writer to like really require that not only you have a specific dish, but you're making that dish across the scenes and it's and it's referenced throughout i mean it's kind of like it's a big focus isn't it throughout the whole yeah throughout the whole script it is yeah it's a pretty big um well yeah from start to finish in that script in the opening scene there's tea being made you know there has to be water boiling for tea and um and then yeah was, was that a struggle was that a, a a fight to make all of that work or was it were you kind of surprised at how it worked there were some tricks there were some uh, little hacks that we learned along the way i mean part of it was just justin kept us with fresh supplies from week to week which was very appreciated because we did ha you know actually have to take a bite here and there um and so you know we didn't we, we didn't have the old crab we dip. Old crab dip. I, <laughs> I feel bad now. I've like called somebody out for the old crab dip, but <laughs> it, it really did become a joke. It was just kind of more fun than anything. But um, yeah, it it was. I, I just remember him coming in with armloads of groceries each week um, and thinking, "Oh man, you know, <laughs> I'm so grateful." But this poor guy, he's like bringing in another loaf of fresh bread and more cans of tomatoes, more onions, more garlic. Um, and then even at the end of the play, there was, uh, there was food in the last scene too. The, the, uh, Matt Hellier's char character brings her breakfast because she yeah. mentions, you know, she makes a reference. Oh, That's one of the things I miss are these special hotel breakfasts. And so then he comes in with a whole we setup. We haven't had enough food in the show. Right. Yeah. We need a little more. We, we need to be so, so literally before the show would start, I'm, I mean, you, you talk about checking your props. It was like oh it was like we were at a restaurant. We were like, okay, we got to get the toast in the toaster. We've got to fill the wine glasses with the grape juice or, you know, the wine bottle with the grape juice. We've got to um, go ahead and, and get the tea water starting to heat up because it has to be boiling within the first few minutes of the first scene and it, it won't boil fast enough. So we have to kind of preheat the water before we actually heat the water. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot. And then, um, but every one of us touched food because then at one point, Mike's character wants to help grate cheese. Yeah, He's grating Parmesan on stage while he's, you know, talking about his dead wife. Um, it was wild, but it helps that I cook in real life. Yeah. Yeah, and at some point it's like 
you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, I guess they say. If you're going to make preparing food part of the script, it may as well be a big part of the script. You may as well just go all in. It was definitely an immersive experience for the audience because, again, this was at Gallery Theater where we had, you know, 40 people on a heavy night. Um, They're up close and personal. And it was, you well, you know, you can hear everything. You're backstage. So, so beware, you know, if you go to see a show where that's a teeny tiny theater, the actors can hear you. So if, if at intermission, right. you're like, that guy is terrible. Uh, <laughs> we can hear you. So, don't give away those secrets now. <laughs> no, you, you don't, you don't start talking about your, your critique on the show until you're, you know, a good, In your car. <laughs> right. Yes. You're like a thousand feet away from the theater. But um, no, I, I could always hear audience members milling about during intermission going oh man i'm hungry that garlic smells so good <laughs> and they're you know looking on stage where the the pot of sauce is still there and the the bread's all cut up and um every yeah, it's a bonus sensory experience for everybody totally That's nice. every night somebody would say i almost walked up there to have a bite um <laughs> and then yeah and one one person even said um you know you guys could have made a lot of money at intermission if you sold garlic bread because all of us were in the mood for it. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. Me neither. Yeah. Oh, I didn't want to finish the food segment without talking about food backstage as well. Um, Because people who attend plays might not realize it, but there is almost always something backstage for people to nibble on during a show. What is your favorite backstage nibble to have justin i don't really eat when um i'm backstage because it was kind of ingrained in me in high school like don't eat in your costume don't eat in your costume so i i want to not not eat backstage but people have brought brownies people have and that's i mean you've always got me with a brownie i mean brownies are just (laughs) hard to deny Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so no, I'm, I'll, I, and some people say that they don't eat before a show. I need to, um, because I, I'm going to pass out if I don't eat before a show, <laughs> I am a sweaty mess. And so I lose a lot of, <laughs> yeah. a lot of electrolytes during a show. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I definitely need to eat before a show. So during a show, I'm not usually hungry either after the show, you know, going out to, you know, whatever it is, the local eatery or bar afterwards, sure. I'll have something to eat. But yeah, backstage, not so sure. much. What about what about you, Heidi? Whistlers, 100%. Whistlers. Yeah, that's, that's my, if I'm going to eat something backstage, because I'm with you, I've got to fuel up, I've got to eat something before the show. And I'm always hungry after the show. I, it's a lot of adrenaline, you're burning a lot of energy. I, I, I don't know, I, I, need, I got to eat. But for a snack, if I have to have a snack backstage, I learned from someone years ago. I don't remember who. Um, but what you just said about, you know, you don't eat in your costume. It's like, well, yeah, you don't eat chocolate in your costume. You don't right. eat anything gooey or sticky or that could stain. Right. But a Twizzler is kind of perfect. It doesn't get your hands sticky. It doesn't get on your costume. You can kind of just, you know, bite off a little piece here and there for a little sugar bump yeah Um, i don't think anybody who hasn't done community theater understands just how ubiquitous backstage twizzlers are i don't think i've been in a show that didn't have at least a package of twizzlers backstage 
at oh, some 100%. point. 100%. Yep. Mm. Absolutely. That, that's the way to go. But you're right. I mean, there are people who come in with like their bag of McDonald's and they don't necessarily have their costume on yet, but they're back there just, you know, wolfing down chicken nuggets and French fries and pulling out four different dips and sucking down a root beer. And I'm like, huh. Okay, you know, <laughs> rock it out. That's what you need. <laughs> I guess. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, there's always like somebody bakes and brings, you know, muffins or brownies or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I would, yeah. Any anybody who is in theater who's listening to this, I would, you know, try to suggest to them if you want to be nice and like treat your fellow actors to some sort of tasty treat backstage, do keep that in mind. You know, don't bring like a big messy cherry cobbler. Bring, bring something that's not going to make a mess. Yeah, fruit is good, too, for a little... I mean, I can remember during complete works of William Shakespeare Abridged, and we had an all-ladies cast, and we were just... That's a very high-energy show. And we would be starving and sweating, and we'd run off stage, and by intermission, we were all like, <sighs> we need something. And it seemed like the thing we landed on besides Twizzlers uh, were grapes, because it was like a little uh, burst of... Mm -hmm. you know liquid too so you mm -hmm. kind of got like a drink and a snack in one um and they weren't messy mm -hmm. so the fun part about being in a show where there is food as props or properties is that you know you get to eat it afterwards too <laughs> so mm -hmm. like i remember doing uh, scatter the pigeons and there was a birthday cake in that and <laughs> our stage manager god bless her she made a new cake every day Wow. Show. Wow. So yeah, we, I mean, oh yeah. Let them eat cake. Had a whole new meaning. <laughs> so nice. Well, yeah. During skylight that, you know, you guys would eat the, the spaghetti sauce and bread. Um, at some point in the run that stopped after we had been, you know, working with it for weeks and weeks and you guys were like, no more spaghetti <laughs> sauce and bread. We're good. We're just going to dump it. Um, yeah. Yeah. At the Albright they, they used to do every year the legend of sleepy hollow and Ichabod crane at one point would have a feast laid out before him and have to, you know, eat a bunch of food really fast. And it was always the, the cruel joke that you, you set out little powdered donuts because what is, <laughs> what is harder to eat oh, and, oh, and shove down your, your throat really, really fast. It's like so little evil. powdered donuts. Yeah, you know. uh, that's pure evil right there. Yeah. It's a Halloween show. It's supposed to be evil. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we are excited to be joined by our friend Scott Purdy, a busy stage and film actor who has managed to make up for lost time and then some. Well, Scott Purdy, thank you so much for joining us on the Just For Show show. My pleasure. We want to know a little bit about your origin story. I know that you had a very interesting career that kept you away from theater for a few decades. So okay. I'd like to hear about um, your theater origin story. Okay. Um, when I was six years old, a movie was released, The Music Man. And there was this one character in that movie, Winthrop Peru, played by Ronnie Howard, who is just a little bit older than I am. And Ron Howard was born on the same date that I was born, yeah. but two years earlier. Uh, 
anyway, I saw that and said, that's what I want to do. So I begged my mom and she found uh, a school where I took acting lessons and uh, I worked with a vocal coach and I worked with a variety of people and I did a lot of acting starting at age six and was in school shows and was in acting school shows and was in this and that and the other for years and years and years. Um, went to college, started out saying, I'm going to do something other than the theater. <laughs> I spent a lot. I did a lot of uh, music. I minored in music. I did a lot of singing in uh, choirs and uh, various ensembles. And, uh, then I ultimately, late in sophomore year, said, I can't get away from the acting stuff. So I, <laughs> I majored in theater. Oh, it's like and the mafia. You can't, you can't escape it. That's it's right. Like mafia. Yeah. In the two or so years, I was involved in over 150 productions because I worked at various and sundry shows uh, at the five colleges around the area. Did you say yeah. in two years? In two years. In two you years. I would be working on, now, most of it I was not acting in. Most of it I was building sets, doing props, doing this, doing that, doing the other. Basically, every show at three of those five colleges I was involved in. Wow, that's incredible. And that included the student shows, that included the main stage shows, that included all just the entire range. And then I did summer stock for a few years. And then I worked in the business for a couple of years, three, four years after, um, three years after uh, graduating from college. And then I met a girl. <laughs> Not just any girl. Yeah. You met a ballerina. She was a she was a professional ballerina. <laughs> she was still a student at the time, but she was a, a ballerina, and uh, we were introduced by my sister, who was also a student at the same school where Marjorie was going, and we were instantly mutually unimpressed. <laughs> and one month later, to the day we were engaged. <laughs> Oh, as all love, great love stories begin. And really unimpressed. I said, we have this problem. <laughs> You're a ballerina. You aren't going to make any money. Oh, I'm well, in theater. And I'm barely making enough to, so. Very logical for an actor. Yes. So I determined that I was going to go back to school. And I got an MBA from McGill University in Montreal. And uh, became a banker. And after the the waiting time to figure out how where I was going to go to school and the two years in uh, business school, we were married three years after we got engaged. So it was a long engagement, during which time I was most of it I was in Montreal and she was in Houston. So it was <laughs> it was colorful. Two different countries, yeah. Anyway, I then became 
I got an MBA in finance and I became a banker with a major international bank and rose to become a senior vice president at uh, at the peak, I had about 240 people reporting to me, running a portfolio of a little over $12 billion of problem loans, because that's what I did. I collected the bad loans. And uh, <laughs> then in uh, 2014, yeah, 2014, they came to me and said, uh, it's been a fun run. It's been almost 30 years. And um, they came to me and said, here's a big check. Go away. <laughs> I said, cool. We're fine. So I come home and I tell my wife, well, they said, uh, time's up. She said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I figured we'd travel. We've always talked about traveling. I want to go to Greece. I want to go to Vietnam. I want to go here. I want to go there. We, uh, no, 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 we can't travel. I've, we've got too many family obligations to be away that much. I said, well, then I guess I'll just hang around the house. <laughs> she says, no. <laughs> I married you for better or worse, but not for lunch. Get the hell out of the house. <laughs> Okay. So uh, I said to myself, well, maybe I can go back and do what it was that I always wanted to do before I ended up in this silly banking gig. Yes. <laughs> so silly. I'm very offended that banking took you away from the stage yeah. for so long. That's yes, but it paid uh, oh, it yeah. paid a lot more than I would have made on the stage or in film. Of course. So I said, gee, I, I guess I'll go online and see what may be out there in terms of theater around here, because I could not go to the theater for 35 years. I could, I, I could not go to a show. If I went to a show, I would get so angry and so upset, and I would be looking at it and say, I should be on stage. Why am I doing this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That I totally could not sense. watch it. I could go to the opera because I'd go to the opera and I'd say I couldn't even begin to do this, but I can watch it. But yeah. if I could do it, if I knew that I could had the ability to be up there on that stage and do it, I couldn't watch it. When my wife retired from ballet, we had season tickets up until that point to uh, the ballet. <laughs> but she had, cannot watch dance anymore since she retired as a dancer wow uh because it's just it's it's traumatic to watch it so i had no idea what there was in theater so i looked around and i found this oh there's a little community theater seven miles from my house didn't even know they were there I had no clue and they're doing this show and uh there's a role in it that you know i could do that it's the right age. You know, it's been 35 years since I've been on the boards, but uh, I went and auditioned for Heidi Swarthout <laughs> uh, and uh, was not cast in the role that I thought that I auditioned for. I was cast in a very different role. I was cast as a uh, officious senator, arrogant. Well, I'm sorry, I'm redundant, a senator. Um, <laughs> and uh, we did the, the show called The Curious Savage, 
And then uh, I don't think that, say for one uh, stint when I said, okay, I'm going to go uh, do a little bit of traveling or t- and, and another stint when I was trying to do a through hike on the Appalachian Trail and I only ended up doing a few hundred miles. Um, only, only a few hundred miles. The, uh, other than that, uh, there has not been a time that I haven't been working on at least one theater project. I'm mostly a stage actor. In the seven years, I've done a little over 50 stage plays, and I've done somewhere just over 20 films in the seven years. And I also do voiceovers, and I also do, uh, uh, I've done a few commercials, and um, yeah, you know, a lot, a lot of readings over the past year, a lot. Are you strictly a straight play guy or do you dabble in musicals as well since you have the vocal training? I've done probably six musicals. Let's see, six or seven musicals. Uh, I did Mushnick in uh, the one uh, with the plant. Oh, Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors. I did Mushnick in Shop of Horrors. Um, I did... uh, uh, Huckabee, Huckabee in uh, The Fantastics. I was in uh, uh, Crazy for You, which is a Gershwin thing. I did uh, a... Uh, a tap dancing. Uh, yeah, I, I did. We did the Broadway choreography. <laughs> it, <laughs> no was, it was scary. Yeah. It was scary. What about uh, The Music Man? Have you been in a production of The Music Man since that's kind of what started the whole thing? No, I have not. Uh-huh. I have not. But I'm really not a musical guy. What, what I do in these is I do shtick. It's less about the, oh, I'm going to sing with and carry a harmony line and do all of that. It's more, I'm going to do some comic shtick and we're going, I mean, um, we're going to, I was in the Fantastics. I ended up in a pink tutu. Um, I saw the picture. It's (laughs) shtick. No. So I, I do that kind of stuff, but mostly, mostly I'm a straight play, mostly theater. I do Santa, go figure. Yeah. <laughs> I, kind of, yeah. I kind of fell into that. That was not uh, an in, something I went out and intentionally started, but I was growing the beard for a role. And uh, a filmmaker that I'd worked with before called me up, said, hey, I'm shooting a short. I need a Santa Claus. Are you willing to do it? I said, sure, why not? What the heck? And from there, the Santa thing kind of took off in ways that I never expected. Oh, I would love to hear more about the Santa gigs. Would you tell us about some of your experiences with working with kids? It's almost like improv, right? I've done four different, significantly different types of Santa gigs. One is the films. I've done um, multiple appearances as Santa in films and commercials and stuff like that. That's all scripted and storyboarded, very disciplined, etc. Um, then I was cast as Santa in the Polar Express train ride in New Orleans. 
That's so and cool. so I spent a month doing Santa Claus on a moving Amtrak train. And that was a very unique stage production because my job was to interact very, very intimately. I mean, yeah, it was get eight inches away, 10 inches away from the kid and hand them the silver bell and tell them, I believe this bell is just for you. Oh, how wonderful. Um, or one of several other approved lines by uh, <laughs> Universal. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, because they own the rights and they're very, very protective of that property. It is uh, their second most valuable property. So um, I would go through four different Amtrak rail cars interacting with each child on each performance. We would do six performances a day, seven days a week for the entire month of December, plus a little bit of January. Luckily, it was December in New Orleans and not July in New Orleans. <laughs> well, this is true. This is very true. Because <laughs> I can't imagine um, being in a Santa suit in the middle of July in New Orleans. This past year, because of COVID, the Polar Express shows did not run because it was just too hazardous. Sure. So I did basically personal appearances as Santa, which I would book through a booking service online. And uh, these would be both corporate parties as well as private home visits. Socially distanced, mostly outside, um, make an appearance. The kids were 10 feet away. Uh, you distribute candies or whatever, and you do tell stories, but you wouldn't have the on-the-lap interview. And I also did about 300 Zoom Santa appearances where – I worked with three, four different Santa services where people could sign up for a time slot for, depending upon which one, anything from a five-minute to a 20-minute Zoom visit interview with Santa. And that's a large part of what prompted me to get a proper green screen, proper lighting, proper so that I could make the Santa appearances as realistic as possible with a... Uh, the moving Santa North Pole backgrounds and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, that's so cool. Did you um, also deliver these some of these Zoom messages internationally? Oh, yes. Something oh, that yeah. Zoom has opened up the possibilities for. Yeah. Uh, I had uh, calls in England, in Canada, in Ireland, um, in New Zealand. So, yeah, uh, the hours were basically whatever you wanted to set all day because you're working across multiple time zones. So I think I had one in India actually also. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's exhausting work, but it also must be incredibly joyful. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And it was well, one of the things about Santa is you always get uh, some kids who were frightened. Santa Claus. Oh, sure. And on the train, 
you're very, you're in close quarters and you have this kid who all of a sudden, as you approach, starts screaming. So it's take the bell and hold it at full arms extension to the kid and don't get close. The Zoom, that never became an issue. I had it at some of the parties where you'd have kids who would freak out, but the Zoom, never an issue because, hey, there's the natural distance of you're on a TV screen, so the kid could cope with that. Anyway. Sure. And then would you tell us about a time that you were recognized out and about just because of the beard and everything? Were there some kids oh who have spotted you and said, Mom, Dad, it's Santa? <laughs> um, when I was in New Orleans I uh, for the Polar Express. Many days you worked all six shows, but occasionally you would only work three and you'd have either the early afternoon off or the evening off. And that's the time to go and sample the cuisine at the various New Orleans restaurants. Not a one did I go to where I wasn't approached by people who wanted a photo with Santa. And of course, you've got to, of course you do that. Probably the most amusing was I went to lunch at Commander's Palace, which is one of the most iconic restaurants in uh, New Orleans. Now, I couldn't avail myself of the 25-cent martini, which they are famous for, because my contract said that I could not have anything to drink within 12 hours Prior to call. Yeah, no boozy Santas. Yeah. So, which most days my call was 9 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> and most days I didn't get off until about 10 p.m. Ah, rats. <laughs> which meant it was mostly a dry month. But I went to the commander's palace and there was this huge table. I I was sitting at a a small table and now right next to this huge table with a dozen people. And it was the big extended family, an Asian family. The Asian grandmother was obviously the running the show here and had invited their children and grandchildren. They were all getting together for the big uh, Saturday afternoon luncheon at a pre-Christmas luncheon at Commander's Palace. And they saw me and they asked me to come over and I took pictures with all of the kids and everybody. And Okay, this is wonderful. And um, so then I report for the final three performances of the day at uh, the Polar Express and of the first performance, as I get into the second car, there's the whole family from the restaurant. <laughs> that was the second part of their day was they had lunch at Commanders, and then they went to, took, she took the whole family to see the Polar Express. Oh, and those and kids recognized her, you, I bet. She, the eyes just went, oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> we I just saw it. Exist. <laughs> I love it. But, oh, uh, it, and it doesn't matter the age. I mean, I had 
people in their 70s wanting pictures. I had people in their 20s wanting picture. I had yeah. it's irres- it's an irresistible draw. I think I and Lori Holm took a picture with you as you Santa did. one time at the Steel Bean Theater. No one can resist a picture with Santa. That's absolutely. But this look is not by any means limited to Santa. It's gotten me a ton of gigs. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's yeah, gotten okay. me gigs as uh, a Vietnam veteran. Uh, it's gotten me gigs as Abraham, biblical. It's gotten me gigs as uh, I played God. Oh, I, played, I played Odin. I've done eccentric owner of a curiosity shop. I've done just this, inor- I mean, a, a range of kind of oddball character roles. I've got an upcoming gig in a Harry Potter fan fiction thing. It's gotten me a lot of stuff. Wow. Santa has opened a lot of doors for you. Yeah. And it's it just the look. It's, you know, yeah. change kind of like glasses, tie the hair back, do something with a beard, you know, something scraggly. Uh, I've done a number of different fantasy type things. I did a... Uh, I've got a film coming up where uh, it's based on a comic book characters, and I play a uh, basically an evil uh, Western character. Can you speak to the difference between film acting and stage acting? I know that your preference and the majority of your work is in stage acting, but could you speak a little bit to the difference between film and stage acting? Like the difference between watercolor and sculpture. Totally different media, totally different media. One of the things that I tell people in response to this is that theater is an actor's medium. Film is a director's medium. Oh, interesting. When I shoot a film, uh, you do the scenes however many times from however many different perspectives, the camera looking over your shoulder, the camera looking over the other character's shoulder at you, uh, the Overall shot, the wide shots, uh, however many. <laughs> I did one, I did a shoot just the other day with a 45 second scene where there were 15 different camera perspectives and each one was had at least a dozen takes. And it took two days on a 45 second scene. Wow. Um, that was that was kind of a significant overkill, but um you have no clue what will show up in the final product. I was contracted as a, a featured performer for um, Chicago Med. Cool. Did not make the episode. Uh, Bummer. Yeah. Talk about uh, an exercise in, in keeping things fresh and spontaneous 45 seconds and you have to do it 15 different times over the course of two days. And that's yeah. a lot. That's a lot, but the director can completely alter the film in the editing room. Mm-hmm. So it's the director in control, the director's medium in theater. Once that curtain opens, The director has no influence on what I do on that stage. You know, uh, it is it is a matter of trust between 
the, the director and the actors and the actors as an ensemble that you aren't going to significantly alter, though I have been in shows where people took liberties um, and things shifted mightily, um, and which is not a professional thing, but it happens. It happens. Um, so because the actor is in control, theater is an actor's medium. Other major difference, usually, Polar Express was different, but usually in theater, there is a substantial distance between you and your seat and the actor on the stage, whether it, even if it's arena or whatever, there is usually physical distance that can be very significant, particularly if you're playing a large house. In film, the camera will often be a head and shoulder shot. Sometimes it will even get closer. And people can be watching this on relatively large screens. Yes, I've done a few things that have ended up on projected in theaters, but usually it's people will be watching this on their computer screens or maybe even watching it on their 50-inch high-def 4K screen at home. (laughs) And so... They're looking at your face where on the screen, your face is two and a half feet tall. Whereas in the theater, I mean, we played, Heidi and I played in the Sandwich Opera House, which is a huge house. And if people were sitting halfway back in the house, you look like you're a couple inches tall on that stage. Because of that, the acting is very different, different expression, different makeup, different. Everything about it is different because film is so close and intimate in it, the way it's shot. The acting is mostly with the eyes. As a matter of fact, you're more, much more powerful if physically you're doing very little, you're letting your eyes do the work. Very different media. It's as different as watercolors and marble sculpture. I can see that. Yeah, with theater, you're you're almost trying to catch, you know, a magic moment as it flies by you. Um, and in film, you have this opportunity to nuance it. And like you said, you know, through the director and their vision and all those different takes to really molded into something else. And with mm-hmm. theater, you're just putting it out there and then it's gone. It's there and gone. That's right. Well, good for you for being able to bounce back and forth between both because you've really done a lot of stage work and a lot of film work. Another thing that, uh, and this is why I like stage work. In theater, you tell the whole story in one sitting. The curtain goes up. Tell the whole story in 90 minutes, two hours, whatever the length of the show. In film, from an actor's perspective, you tell the story in 15, 20, 60 second shots. Usually not in sequence. Mm, Um, And so having a sense of the through line of the character, having a sense of the character story arc is totally different 
theater versus film. What are some moments that you've had on stage that are that sort of stick out to you that are memorable that you really feel like you captured that moment that flashed by? <sighs> oh, God, there are so many. Much of it is moments where you have this real connection with the other actor in a scene and it is completely believable. And there is a moment of uh, spiritual contact and both of you kind of go, Oh my gosh, what just, that, that just happened. That just happened. Um, Those are the magic things that happen in acting. Acting is about being completely believable. If it's not believable, the audience will see it and they will be distanced from it. If they can see that the two actors are actually truly being affected by each other in that exchange, then the audience will see it They'll recognize it, they'll believe it, and they will be drawn into it. Yes, I would like to say I, I shared one of those moments with yes, you. Yes, we did. And it was, it was in a rehearsal. And I feel like we once we found it, then we were able to to bring that to the mm-hmm. performances. But I remember that that moment, that first rehearsal, it was in on Golden Pond, and I played your daughter, you played Norman, I played Chelsea. And it was, you know, this, they've kind of had this tension and build up, and now they've got this little confrontational moment where are they going to maybe see eye to eye for a second? And it was, I put out my hand and you hesitated and then mm-hmm. you took it. And it was like uh, just the, the sparks, the, the magic was mm-hmm. all around. It was such a cool moment. And that's what keeps you coming back. That's that's the real rush as an actor. I mean, um, I was never a good golfer. I did it because business sort of demanded it. But every once, even a bad golfer, every once in a while has this incredible shot that is just perfect, and that's what make they remember, and that's what draws them back in. But it's akin to that. You have that moment that you share with another actor that is just like, oh my gosh, that happened. Yeah. Pretty special. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've cool. had quite the career. Like you said, you've, you've been in all these productions. And so what are product, what are some shows that you still want to tackle? Lear. I was, that is so funny. You say that I was thinking that I was like, gosh, he really needs to do King Lear. Yes. Lear. I want to do Prospero, but I really want to do Lear. Yes. Um, Heidi could be one of your daughters. Yes. <laughs> Reagan, please. Right here. <laughs> um, I would like I would like to do, there are a number of roles in the canon, the Shakespearean canon that I love. I did a reading where I played King Henry IV, um, and I was... We, I was with a group of with a, from all over the world, and the actor playing Hal was from England and was a uh, trained um, uh, Shakespearean actor in England. 
and the scenes between Hal and his father in Henry the Fourth. Uh, that's theater gold. Um, I would love to do that on stage. And hopefully before too long, I'll be uh, reprising my role in uh, of Ray in uh, Yankee Tavern. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that show. It's, uh, it's a fascinating show. Um, well, a lot of what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to uh, get more heavily involved in Christian film. Mm. Oh, interesting. So I've, uh, I've done several so far. Uh, I've got several more coming up. Uh, it's a challenging medium because the qualities, the use often of the script are not all that great. Um, but I did uh, one where I played uh, where I played Abraham, and I also played Simeon. Uh, of uh, Simeon, who meets the baby Christ child when he is presented at the temple. Um, so uh, I've got one where uh, I played God. I've got one where I'm that's uh, uh, coming up where I'm playing a homeless veteran. Um, I've you know a whole range of different things but that's uh, on the film side that's where I'm trying to focus a little bit more that's exciting it sounds like there are a lot of places where we can look for Scott Purdy uh, let's see I just I've got a film shoot coming up this weekend I was just on the the, the meeting of the, the first meeting of the cast just minutes before I joined you all oh. um Bally G um, I've got a couple more coming up in the next, uh, between now and June. So what does shooting look like in the pandemic? Shooting depends upon the project. <laughs> depends upon the project, depends upon the budget, depends upon the production company. I did a day of shooting for a made for TV film that, uh, is being targeted for, I don't know which, Hallmark Channel or one of those uh, for this Christmas upcoming Christmas season. That was everybody has to get the COVID test. Everybody is masked. Everybody is social distanced, except the actors have to, of course, take their masks off for their scenes. And from a safety perspective, I felt fine. I, I shot a commercial um, where everybody was distanced. They, they blocked it so that I, you, you were never within eight feet of any other actor. But of course, when you're on, uh, when you're on screen, you are unmasked. And of course, everybody had to follow all of the uh, COVID protocols, uh, be tested, et cetera, et cetera tested afterwards, had to report in if anybody got sick. The one uh, that uh, is the made-for-TV film, uh, two days later, one of the crew uh, 
came down with COVID that shut down the production. Everybody quarantined for two weeks. Um, and uh, nobody else got it. That's uh, good. Who was, who was on the set. And there were, there were 40 people on that set. Yeah, that's was, a challenge. It, it was a big crew with a pretty decent-sized budget. But then you end up with these uh, small indie films where you've got six people on the set, and things kind of get a little dicier. And that's more it's more up to each individual to t- make sure that they protect themselves. That's good. I'm sure you have no problem speaking up if you are uncomfortable in a situation. I have no problem speaking up. <laughs> and I've got, oh gosh, I don't know, eight films in the can right now that are uh, still awaiting release or yeah. um, have been uh, are in festivals. I've got, I think, four films in film festivals right now. It, one of the hardest things is just keeping track of it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like your ballerina bride cannot complain about your uh, retirement life because you are still on the go every day. Well, not as much. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the COVID, I'm here and it's doing Zoom interview type stuff. Sure, but you're busy. You're staying busy. But I'm busy. That's great. Otherwise, I'd go stir crazy. <laughs> what sorts um, of creative things have you seen theaters do with Zoom in terms of production or rehearsal? Oh, boy. Oh. Okay, here we go. I can't stand Zoom productions. Yeah. Oh, okay. Probably the best one I've been in was uh, just a few weeks back. I did a production of um, Arthur Miller's Crucible. I played Judge Danforth. It was with a company that I've worked with many times, very high quality actors, a good director, um, and of course, a world-class script. Uh, my problem with Zoom productions is that they are uneven, uh, that uh, th- there are too many inconsistencies. And the inconsistencies make it hard for an audience to suspend disbelief and truly invest in the product. One of my favorite people in the cast. Um, he's, he's a great musical comedy guy. He's funny. His timing is wonderful. He was playing one of the great, one of the significant roles in the crucible. When we were setting it in the period. We had the women in the bonnets. We had, he has this pair of glasses that I love. They're very much like these, except they are electric blue. Oh, and for for those who are listening, you're talking about little round glasses. Little round glasses, bright, bright electric. I I have to believe that they have batteries. They are so (laughs) intensely brightly blue. Fun. And he was wearing these and I'm going, you know, I love you, guy. <laughs> but those would never be allowed in a film. They'd never happen on stage. But they do, people do that stuff in Zoom right. readings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have different backgrounds. You have some people with plain white walls, some people with uh, various 
plain backgrounds. And then you have somebody with this ramshackle bookcase behind them because there are there uh, a backlit uh, uh, street scene behind them from looking out their window. And it's just, I'm sorry, it's inconsistent. Sure. Um, and those types of things make it hard for an audience. And what you are trying to do, one of the cores of theater is you are trying to make this easy for the audience to believe and buy in. Acting is about believability. And all of these components in a film, all of them are controlled by the director through the shooting process to try and build a believable storyline where you actually believe these people are interacting together because the magic is in the interaction, as we discussed earlier. But the problem is when you've got all of these little boxes on the screen and they're all in different uh, outfits and they all have different backgrounds and they're all looking into the lens, it's very difficult to say, oh, I actually believe that they are fighting with each other in the same room. Mm. And it's those inconsistencies that make it very hard for me to watch shows. So what I do, if I'm real interested in someone in the cast, is I'll listen to the show yes. as, a as a radio drama. Yeah, yeah. And just oh, yeah. not look at the screen and see if the actors can actually do the show as a radio drama. I totally understand. I, I get it. I had to sort of recalibrate my mind um, at the you know beginning of the pandemic when the Zoom readings began because I, I resisted it for a while. I just I kept thinking it's not the same. It's not the same. And then when I finally gave in and said no, it's not the same. But there's still value in it if you know you're listening to it or if you're treating it as a you know even just a casual gathering with friends to to get the words out. But I, I understand it's, it, you, it will be nice when we can return to the stage and um, make some more magic and make it uh, as it should be with the pace and all those little, those little important things. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so one more question so we don't keep you too long tonight. Um, how would you like to be remembered as an actor when people talk about you a week from now, years from now, what do you want people to say about Scott Purdy as an actor? Uh, well, a couple of things. One, that I could do a range of roles, and that I, uh, I could cover a wide range of different types of characters. Two, that the performances were believable. And three, that... I respected and worked well with other actors. Well, I would say that you will certainly always be thought of that way, uh, especially by those of us who have been lucky enough to work with you. Well, I've worked with all three of you. Yeah. <laughs> lucky uh, yeah. On various and sundry projects. <laughs> and I'm sure we will work together again sometime soon. My yeah. suspicion is that... Uh, by this summer that we should be starting to see 
at least outdoor productions. And by this fall, we should be back on stage. Maybe not with full houses, but we should be back on stage. From your lips to God's ears and Santa's too. So we appreciate you taking the time to meet with us and and answer some questions and take us through your journey with theater. And uh, yeah, we hope to, to be on the boards with you again soon, Scott. Looking forward to it. And it's been my pleasure to talk with y'all. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye for now. And that's all the show we have for you today. Once again, I would like to thank this week's guest, Scott Purdy, for letting us pick his brain, which is a lot less gross than it sounds. Join us next week when our guest will be Sean Hargaden. On behalf of Justin Schaller and Heidi Swarthout, this is Galen Malik saying thank you so much for listening. If you would like to send us questions, comments, or manifestos, you can leave us a message on our Just For Show podcast Facebook page, or you can email us at justforshowpodcast at gmail.com.